0: To the Autism Hour podcast where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. I'm your host, Chelsea Anderson. Some of you may um, realize that my last name has changed. I got married at the beginning of December, so I am now Chelsea Anderson, was previously Chelsea Pruitt. But I wanted to go ahead and introduce a guest today. Dr. Carnett was one of the professors that I interviewed from the University of North Texas. Um, She's an assistant professor in special education. She's been conducting research since 2011. Her interests are speech generating devices and verbal behavior. She's extroverted, enthusiastic, and very eager to change the field of autism through her research. I'm currently a research assistant for her, which allows me to gain valuable experience conducting research in the field of autism. And in this episode, we talk about the importance of science and research, evidence-based practices, prompting single-subject research, reinforcement contingencies, and a lot more. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, and I'll post the resources from this episode that Dr. Carnett mentions in the show notes. Enjoy! Dr. Carnett, and welcome to the Autism Hour podcast. How are you? I'm oh, good. Hi, Chelsea. How are you? Good. Okay, so tell us about your journey to academia. Um, so
1: I got into academia kind of in a roundabout path, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, I started out here at the University of North Texas as a political science major and human rights minor. So there's okay. a minor here called peace studies that you could get, and it was very new um, okay. when I started out. I was one of the first. Uh, minor certificate recipients, actually. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was really cool. Um, And so I worked in human rights for a little while, uh, working with asylum seekers and torture survivors. Okay. And as I was doing that, I started working as a uh, general education teacher for middle school and high school. Okay. And around that time, my advisor, Stephen Poe, who I was going to continue on to a master's program, passed away suddenly. And so... At the time, I was kind of really loving my job as an educator, and so I decided, um, since I was uncertain about doing human rights as far as higher education was concerned, Mm -hmm. I would see how teaching went and then make harder life choices as I needed to. And so I taught in public school um, and then got recruited to work at a charter school for Um, a year okay and then I moved to Austin just because I was ready for change in scenery I suppose and uh, started working in special education as a teacher assistant okay and then from there uh, I went ahead and got my teacher certification for special education and worked in an autism unit um, and also PPCD for a year Okay. Um. And while doing those programs, was when I kind of figured out I didn't know enough, (laughs) and I should go back for a master's. Um, Okay. And so I pursued a master's in applied behavior analysis at San Marcos University. Or University of uh, uh, used to be Southwest Texas. Now it's a Texas State University. Okay. Um. I studied under Dr. Russell Lang there. Okay. And. I loved every minute of it. So after that, I continued to work as in the school district while doing my master's program, and also got involved in his research lab. And from there, that's what took me on to uh, pursue a Ph.D. um, in applied behavior analysis and Ed Psych, Um, and that was at the University or Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Okay. Where I studied under Jess Sigafoos and learned a lot about uh, teaching children to use uh, speech generating devices as an alternative mode of communication. Okay. When spoken language doesn't develop. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean I just kinda went with it yeah. so to speak. And here I am. Now I'm back at UNT and Yeah. <laughs> Working in special education again. and yeah.
0: As a professor and a researcher. Yeah, yeah. so it's
1: a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, so we're going to get into some of your research, but I want to back up and have you talk a little bit about working with ter- torture survivors. What okay. What did yeah. that look like?
1: Um. So here at UNT, while I was in the Peace Studies Department, one of the options we had as a student was to um it actually started out as part of a course component and so we needed to go uh do some hands-on experience and so there was lots of volunteer opportunities and so you just picked one Mm -hmm. and then you did a project over it and so I picked to go work at um, the Center for Survivors of Torture in Dallas okay and really had a great time working there as a volunteer and then um there was an option to do a practicum experience for internship okay and so i pursued that uh, through the peace studies department and they helped me collaborate that internship and that internship lasted for about two years actually, because okay. even after the course was over, I continued to intern for them um, and did a lot of policy advocacy there.
0: Okay. Um, did you want to pursue that line of work as a career? At any yeah, point? so okay. I was
1: planning to uh, work uh, specifically. A lot of the research and uh, studies I was doing was related to um, the International Criminal Court. Okay. And so. I was kind of on the fence whether or not I wanted to go pursue a law degree or do, like, a joint degree uh, to study uh, political asylum and international human rights law. Okay. Um, But, yeah, after I started working in the classroom, those ideas, you know, kind of... (laughs) I like that as more of a hobby than uh, something I wanted to pursue full-time. Okay. Uh, I just really enjoyed working with kids, and it was (laughs) just really reinforcing to me, and so... Uh yeah. Do you I still do any on. of
0: that advocacy work now? Or? Uh
1: yeah, I do like some political advocacy uh now. I don't okay. work uh with CST anymore. Mm-hmm. Um but I still try to stay politically active and, yeah. Um you know, I'm a member of Amnesty International and things like that. So Okay. I try to stay relevant and I think just I mean special education in a lot of ways is working in human rights. It's mm-hmm. just a different sub-area, but these you know this is still a population at risk definitely. which was appealing to me in a lot of ways just uh because often there we were not providing the services that need to be happening for kids and mm-hmm. so that was kind of some of the drive um, for me or my motivation to yeah. do this field um, well, and, I think, and it's fun you know yeah. it's working with kids at the end of the day it's yeah. not that serious <laughs> definitely um and sometimes uh working with you know people who are traumatized and experiencing that. You know that can be a lot to deal with. So mm-hmm. this was kind of a lighter version of yeah. uh, human rights for me.
0: Yeah, um, still advocating, and you're still able to merge those interests. I would imagine in classes like what you're teaching right now. That yeah. I'm a student in of p- public policy and special education. So yeah, so
1: I mean, there's always need for advocacy, especially mm-hmm. for individuals who. Um, have different needs to get met and so thinking about policy issue I think just on a global sense of human rights is really important Mm -hmm. and so um, I kind of take I learned a lot from that background in terms of what I do now. So last year, for example, uh, a group of us did some lobbying um, at the Texas legislature to get um, licensure for board-certified behavior analysts. And one of the particular reasons why we wanted to do this was because, you know, working with a population at risk, you need highly qualified individuals. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this was one way to ensure that we have um, the level of quality of service providers out there based on, you know, these are licensed people. It's not just Mm -hmm. anybody can say, you know, oh, yeah, I knew ABA. (laughs) Yeah, Um, or I know how to do discrete trial training. So those are two different things in my mind. So Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, so it's great that the state of Texas is moving towards uh, licensure. Mm -hmm. That went through our state legislature. So we're all very excited to see that level of quality of standard come through. Because... Uh, we want to make sure that we're serving children in the best ways possible and with mm-hmm. the highest level of quality we can. Yes.
0: Okay, so talk a little bit about teaching in a public, uh, public school district and also your work at a charter school. Okay, so yeah, that
1: was kind of one of those things that, uh, once again, being kind of young and naive, <laughs> I, I just kind of jumped right into. Um, I actually did um, what's called an alternative certification. Okay. And I did that through one of the region centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That was an interesting experience. Um, I was fortunate in the program that I selected, I kind of, that was one area I had done a little homework in, Mm -hmm. and um, so since I had kind of a degree in government per se, that's what I had intended to teach, but the first job I took was at um, a very small school district in a rural area. And so I ended up teaching five grade levels, which was kind of insane. Yeah. Um, It prepped me well for my job in academia, I think. Yeah. Because I got a good (laughs) threshold of like staying organized and being busy
0: all the time. (laughs) Juggling, juggling a lot of hats. Yeah, Yeah,
1: definitely. So um yeah, it was it was a good experience because it's just like, you know it's your first job, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've prepared as much as possible, but you're never gonna guess everything that's going to come your way. Yeah. And that was actually my first exposure to working with kids that have autism. I had okay. um, traditionally, um, I don't think this is necessarily true anymore, but a, In the past, we tended, especially at the higher grade levels, to say, all right, it's going to be the inclusion class. (laughs) And generally, that fell in subject matters that weren't highly tested, so social studies was one of those. And so um, I was an inclusion teacher, and I was like, hey, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I... um, (laughs) I don't know what to do. And luckily, I my oldest sister is a public school teacher okay. as well as my brother-in-law. And so I called uh, them, and I was like, what do I do? And my sister's like, well, you need to ask for the IEPs, and you need to read them. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, and you need to follow them because they're the law. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that was good information. And then we, since it was a small school district, uh, the special educator um, worked a lot with me in terms of how to build up modifications and okay. accommodations in the classroom and how to make sure I was fulfilling IEP goals related to my content area and uh, what my level of responsibility was for it. So I actually had a lot of good hands-on training um, in that small school district just because um, it was kind of that village mentality where it's like everybody's doing everything. (laughs) Um, And so it's just part of the responsibilities, but it was a lot of fun. And And how long did you do that? um, So I worked at that school for one year. Okay. And then the I got in touch, or charter school reached out to me. I had a friend that actually worked there, and they wanted to hire me. And so that was appealing to me because it would decrease the number of grade levels I was working in. Okay. And then also my principal was leaving. And so okay. I was just kind of like, mm, this is a cool opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's a good transition time for me. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I went with that. And there I taught science and social studies for fifth and sixth graders. Okay. Um, and that was an inclusive school. So okay. we didn't have a special education department, um, accommodations and modifications and everything special education related, mm-hmm. fell directly to the teachers.
0: Did you have any students with disabilities mm-hmm. in your classroom? Okay.
1: Um, I had some non-identified students and then I had a couple that were identified and had IEPs. Um, okay. And we had like a special education coordinator. <laughs> okay. Um, for our school, but um, essentially that was kind of the role. Um, That's the only role. We didn't have any specialists that pushed in or anything like that. Or okay. Or did like Specialized courses or classes. Yeah.
0: So, what differences did you see when working in the public school versus working in the charter school?
1: Um, I mean, every charter school is really different from what I understand. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of my experience, I saw that there was, you know, it's easier to control things that are smaller. Mm -hmm. So um, our director knew all of the children okay. by name. <laughs> you know, my classroom sizes were much smaller than okay. uh, what would be standard in a public school setting. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? We what have about s- a little more free range to kind of do a little more outside of like your standard curriculum. So mm-hmm. field trips were encouraged if there was academic components to them. Okay. So like one of the cool things we got to do for my science class was... Um, in Texas, and this probably still exists, I would imagine, but there's these things called star parties that different Organizations would put on, and so they would bring all these scientists who were like astronomers, and uh, they would go out to East Texas. I, mean, I think it was East Texas, it might have been West. <laughs> it's been a long time, <laughs> but, anyways, we would go out to like this giant telescope that they built and like uh, do what was called a star party, and we would do stargazing, and they would let us look through their fancy equipment at oh, the stars. Wow. And so really It's neat. really cool because, like, yeah. there's a lot of hands on learning opportunities. Where, not that those things don't happen inside of public schools, but, um, I don't know that it's harder to do, like, overnight trips mm-hmm. <laughs> with yeah. with kids inside of public school. You yeah, know, there's just definitely. a little more red tape to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, not that it can't be done and not that it shouldn't, but, yeah, um, yeah, that was, it was easy to do those things, mm-hmm. um, because it was literally just write it up for your director and then they approve or don't approve yeah. your proposal, so. That's
0: so neat. Yeah, okay. it was a
1: lot of fun, um. And a good experience mm-hmm. uh, kind of teaching another content area.
0: Yeah. And then you went to Austin and taught there. Can you talk a little bit about your experience teaching there?
1: Yeah. So partly why I moved to Austin was because I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do in terms mm-hmm. of graduate school. And so I was considering some options related to human rights. And then in the meantime, I needed to work because student loans and everything. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Just> <laughs> They're <living. real. laughs> Yeah, just
1: living. Yeah. Um, and so I went ahead and took a job uh as a teacher assistant. Well, first I was substitute teaching, which was a little okay. bit rough. Um, and then, yeah, one of the schools, one of the elementary schools I'd been working at I was like, hey, we really like what you're doing. Do you want a teaching assistant job? We'll give you one. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So I did that, and I worked with some great colleagues, and uh, we had a pretty cool special education department at okay. the school. It's where I ended up actually teaching. So okay. after the TA job for a semester, they then hired me as a um, one of the special educators okay. for that school. So worked in the autism, it's called the scores department. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was more inclusion-based uh, types of individuals, okay. but we also served across the continuum of <laughs> needs. So yeah. um, I had kids that were both in, say, um, resource classes as well as inclusion classes, mm-hmm. and we just kind of did everything. And Okay. Uh, we... We were fortunate in that we all worked well together, so we kind of departmentalized a little bit. So I did a lot of the behavior management-related services for Mm -hmm. our students in special education. And uh, the resource teachers and I would kind of tag-team. You know, depending on schedules, <laughs> that was always the hardest part. Um, yeah, was definitely. just kind of getting everybody's schedule to work.
0: Um. What are some challenges that you um, experienced while working in that setting? So, as a teacher, a special ed teacher in um, Austin.
1: Well, so what got me actually started into the research that mm-hmm. I do now was because um, I took a job where I had two children who we would probably classify as not vocal or nonverbal. Okay. Um and. <laughs> They were in inclusion, and <laughs> um, although we had alternative communication modalities, it was kind of like well, you know, there wasn't a, like there wasn't a lot of um, knowledge about what to do, okay. and so one of the first things that I kind of looked at was the science of learning, and so I was like, well, I've got a background in like research and stuff from political science. <laughs> so let me see what the journals say to do, and so I just remember like going to, like, I think I still had access to my UNT library at this okay. time. <laughs> So I remember going back through and finding uh, the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, and I was like, well, I don't know what any of this stuff means, but it it seems like there's some, like, these, these graphs look pretty good. Like, there's some nice ascending trends as far as kids learning communication yeah. skills. And then one of the parents that I worked with was... Um, into uh, what she would call the verbal behavior approach. Mm -hmm. And so she loaned me this book, and then the previous teacher was like, yeah, you need to learn about verbal behavior. This is really important for, like, some of the children that are on your caseload. Okay. And so I looked up verbal behavior, found a guy named Vincent Carbone, and I wrote up a proposal to go for teacher professional development, and I said (laughs) it was going to (laughs) help with the state of technology. The state of Texas a te- or student assessment, I think at the time, it was like the STAR test maybe. Okay. Um, and because in my mind, I was like, yeah, if we can learn how to communicate, maybe later we'll take this test. Yeah. <laughs> but Right now we're not communicating, so that seems pretty important to yeah. me. Uh, so I went there, learned a lot about like Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior, mm-hmm. um, the function of like teaching functional communication uh, by assessing function of language, mm-hmm. and from there went back, stripped a speech-generating device, clean of all the buttons, put in the uh, picture symbol of the one that I knew was reinforcing to that child, like mm-hmm. she loved popcorn. So we put a piece of, <laughs> a, a little symbol of popcorn and then like a blank icon and okay. just started over and started okay. teaching basic commands or basic requests.
0: Okay, so tell us a little bit about the verbal behavior approach for those that might not know what that's referring to. Yeah, so in
1: 1957, Skinner wrote a very epic book, (laughs) (laughs) I would say. It's probably one of his most talked-about pieces of work. Um, We're still figuring it all out. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically, it looks at behavior related to communication. So what we would typically say is, oh, that's a communicative behavior. Mm -hmm. Well, Skinner says that in the presence of a listener – um, that would be verbal behavior. So it could be things like prelinguistic behaviors. Okay. So anything that sends a message to a listener and the listener responds would uh, be something we would consider. So um, he classifies things in terms of verbal operants. Okay. Um, so some of the basic ones are like a mand, which would be the same as a request. Okay. Um, attacked, which would be the same as like... Uh, it comes from the word contact, <laughs> so, like, contacting things in the environment, so labeling. Mm-hmm. So, little two-year-olds do this all the time. If they see things that are cool, they want to make a comment or label what it is to their listener. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, echoics, which would be repeating what a, someone says or uh-huh. something. Um, and those correspond with what you heard. So, if uh, your parents say mama and you say mama back, that would be an echoic. hmm Um, And then introverbals, which are similar to the types of communication that we would use for conversation. So basically it doesn't correspond in terms of it's not the same thing that the listener or the, it's not the same communication. So it's like responding to something. So if uh, somebody told you hello how's it going and you responded and said hey i'm great thanks that would be an intraverbal exchange
0: okay so it
1: doesn't have court correspondence point to point okay um, it's a little bit different so
0: okay and then you mentioned a speech generating device can you talk a little bit about that yeah so um
1: for a lot of children uh, especially in public school settings um, We often look at providing AT assistance. Um, And so within that, we would see things like augmentative and alternative communication systems Mm -hmm. provided, uh, especially when uh, a child's not communicating with spoken language. And so often um, we need to deliver actual interventions to teach the children how to use these devices. And so there's a little bit of literature related to things that are outside basic requests but within um behavior analytic research there's not a a lot of research happening outside of just uh basic mans and Mm so um we're trying to extend that literature out as researchers and there's been some some nice headway in the last five years as far as uh really trying to think more about how to teach outside of just basic requesting skills but okay Um, We're still trying to figure out that science, but um, a lot of that comes from the application of Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, Because if you can teach a child why to communicate or the function of it, Mm -hmm. then often they want to do it more. Definitely. (laughs) And uh, as far as children that are not uh, vocal, uh, often when we teach uh, an alternative communication modality... We see a decrease in things like challenging behavior Mm -hmm. if challenging behavior has been a part of their repertoire. Yes. Um, So there's a lot of good research on um, functional communication training that actually is a procedure that or a system of teaching that we would use to replace a child's challenging behavior with something more socially appropriate, but also function-based. So basically, we're going to take what you're doing over here with this challenging behavior. We're going to give you a better way to do it that's socially (laughs) appropriate, and then uh, we see that nice Decrease. Yes, and challenging and, behavior. Yeah, which and is it what makes everybody happy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the kids happy, the parents are happy, yes, teacher topic, teachers happy. Yeah. yeah, it's a good time.
0: Yes. Okay. So tell us a little bit about your research. Since we've been talking about some other people's research, let's hear a little <laughs> bit about what you're doing right now. <laughs> oh,
1: so I'm still a baby <laughs> researcher. So I like to tell people. Um, yeah, I'm. Trying to extend a lot with regards to speech generating devices. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was fortunate to go and work in New Zealand as a doc student in a lab where we were looking at uh, systematic instruction that's behavior analytic in nature for teaching the use of speech generating devices. Okay. So, I went over there because uh, uh, one of the researchers there uh, had a large grant um, and was studying just that. And so, I wanted to learn what he knew. Okay. <laughs> and so that was kind of my drive. Uh, I had worked with these students and still didn't really see much as far as, like, the training that we were receiving inside of mm-hmm. schools. Um and so I thought, yeah, I need to get better at, like, teaching this because it's not always easy. Um, How
0: did you discover this researcher over in New Zealand?
1: I just started reading his work when I was okay. in grad school. And I was like, wow, this guy publishes and, you know, it seems like a lot of the stuff he's doing is really practical. Mm-hmm. Um, it made a lot of sense. Okay, <laughs> um, And then from there, I just, like, started to look into, like, more speech-generating device literature. And so... I applied to New Zealand and I applied to Texas A&M because that's where two of the research groups were. Okay. And I ended up getting uh, into both and decided I would go live in New Zealand of for, three, course. Why for not a little it? bit because yeah. that seemed really <laughs> like a nice adventure. Yes. How um, long were you there? Just a little over three years. Okay. Um, I actually graduated a little bit early, so that was nice. Yeah. Um, they awesome. they have a really cool setup because um, they they're an international school obviously, <laughs> but uh, they take a European model to. Uh, Like, advanced degrees, like a PhD. So, essentially, you're an apprentice. Okay. And so, I got to work hands-on pretty much daily with my advisor, and we ran research together, and um, coursework was set up with you and your advisor, so Okay. um, Wow. a lot of it was kind of more, like, independent Mm study-based, or, you know, like, we would do research symposiums and things, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, it was a really great opportunity, because it was a lot of research which is what I wanted because that's what drove you there
0: in the first place yeah Yeah. I mean
1: there's a lot of need uh, for good research in this area Mm -hmm. Um, there's not a lot of groups doing verbal behavior research related to speech generating devices Um, you know there's some limitations with using them and my theory in life is well there's pretty much limitations with anything that's not spoken communication because that's what everybody Mm-hmm. The mass wise does, so yeah. <laughs> if we can teach these things behavior analytically, uh, then it's probably for the better. We're probably gonna have better results as far as child outcomes, mm-hmm. and you know, yeah. that's what we hope. <laughs> yeah, definitely.
0: You've told me a little bit in the past about the differences in doing conducting research in New Zealand versus conducting research here. Can you talk a little bit about that? The differences that you've observed. Um. Yeah. So.
1: Some of it's just related. I think uh, primarily what I've noticed is there's not a lot of service there as far as like ABA related services. Mm-hmm. I was one or yeah, I was one of two BCBA's in Wellington when I was there. Okay. And the other person that was registered with the board, I think, did animal research. So oh, I used to get parents emailing me or calling me from the registrar. Uh, they would look me up mm-hmm. um, and. You know, unfortunately, I wasn't working a lot of private therapy or anything yeah. when I was there. I was mainly just doing research, so uh, there's just a lot of need, and so parents would respond to flyers that they would see because mm-hmm. it's free service essentially for their child is what they viewed it as. Okay. Um, so recruitment wasn't as difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, here there's lots of service options and people live yeah pretty hectic and busy lives mm-hmm. often so yeah um, recruitment has been a challenge at times here mm-hmm. um, for example we're doing a survey research project and we it's on sleep and it's with a colleague out of New Zealand and we've had a whole lot more <laughs> respondents from New Zealand so far it's still ongoing but um, yeah just uh, it's a small country and mm-hmm. you know they're a little bit different than Americans yeah uh, as you would expect mm-hmm. so
0: um, what is the perception of autism in New Zealand? Does it have, like, a negative stigma attached to it or anything like that? Um,
1: I mean, I think there there's always, like, people that have negative personas of things. And mm-hmm. generally, that's just because we don't have education or we haven't been exposed um, to someone to tell us, like, hey, this is what this is and this mm-hmm. is why it's different and different's okay. Um, so I think that's pretty, like, not specific to um any country Mm -hmm. I mean I've had weird looks here in America working with a kid in public Mm -hmm. similar to yeah you know I think there's a lot more acceptance of disabilities especially autism just because there's more awareness socially okay um that's where like parent groups have done really well in my opinion Mm -hmm. um you know they've gotten the word out like we know what autism is Mm -hmm. we know that it's really different it's a spectrum yeah (laughs) um And it presents itself differently in everybody.
0: So that's pretty common knowledge in New
1: Zealand. Yeah. I mean, I would say, by and large, like, people understand and they know what Mm -hmm. autism is, at least in a very general sense. Um, I was out in public once and I overheard somebody like talking about vaccines, which was kind of flooring to me. So I'm like, really? People are still confused about vaccines and autism, but yeah, actually
0: let's talk about that a little bit. So <laughs> can you share your perspective on that?
1: Yeah. I'm there's not correlation, it's <laughs> not causation. It's more of a, yes. we did not look at the science, uh, before we had some people give us a verdict. So mm-hmm. At this stage, I would say Nails in the Coffin, uh, we've got a lot of research to support that autism is not caused by vaccines. Yes. Um, Andrew Wakefield was somebody that did some, um, did some questionable work out there related mm-hmm. to uh, vaccine and autism, and it caused quite a debate and stir, mm-hmm. but uh, there's been a lot of... Um, Research as a result of his research, it was actually pulled from the Lancet, and he's been stripped of his medical license Mm -hmm. in Great Britain. But. we were able to look at a lot of epidemiology studies where they were not putting uh, the mercury binding agent, was, which was what was in question at the time, mm-hmm. um, into vaccines and noted that they were the same rates of autism in those countries as in other places. It was all pretty comparable. Okay. I mean, what's the cause of autism? We don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Um, probably there's some hereditary disposition. Uh, there may be some environmental things we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but more than likely it's cause got some genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. and you know i'm not a genetic researcher so i can't tell you all about that unfortunately but um yeah it's important that we uh get research information distributed out to people because you know Mm -hmm. at the end of the day we don't want things like whooping cough to come back and you know diseases that we do know kill people Mm -hmm. absolutely (laughs) Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell there's a really great uh um talk on NPR. I think it was Terry Gross, maybe. Uh, okay. It was a fresh air show. And basically they had one of the researchers on that um, explores vaccine schedules, because that's okay. kind of a new point of debate for people is like, well, maybe we should delay uh, the schedules for vaccines. Mm-hmm. But um i'll let people tune into that if they want to hear more about it it was okay, really yeah. interesting um information
0: I can, I can post that to the show notes yeah also. it was on
1: i think last year in the okay. spring maybe i can okay. look it up and try to find it for you okay great it was a great episode
0: <laughs> so what would you say to a parent who came to you and had that um, belief that their child's autism was caused by a vaccine like how would you approach that I know that's happened to me a couple of times, and I, I like you, am shocked when I hear it and, you know, don't always know the best way to respond, so.
1: Well, I mean, first off, I'm not going to try to tell you to believe something or don't believe Mm -hmm. it, Uh, but I do think science is important. We do need to look at science because, you know, these studies aren't done um, in a non-rigorous way. Like, when people are studying things like vaccines, there's a lot of effort in the scientific community to get it right because Mm -hmm. people's lives are important, you know, and so there's that ethical responsibility, so, um, I'll try to support the, you know, whatever it is that I tell them with research, Mm -hmm. and, uh, try to get them in contact with people that are medical doctors that do know more about vaccines and vaccine schedules than me, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm a researcher that does research related to interventions, so that's Mm -hmm. a little bit different, um, so...
0: Okay, well, let's talk about your research for interventions. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, this phrase is thrown or term is thrown around a lot in our field—evidence-based practices? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so in terms of uh, research, intervention research related to autism, a lot of what we do um, is done through what's called single-case experiments or single-case research. Mm-hmm. And the reason we do this is because it's really difficult to find large sample sizes of people that have similar traits and characteristics mm-hmm. all in one location.
0: Especially with <laughs> autism, right? Because it is such a spectrum. And
1: Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so you think about like the percentage of population that I work with. So I'm working mostly with children who are non-vocal. Mm -hmm. That's about 30% of our autism population, Mm -hmm. so it's not very big. And then from there, you try to find kids that have similar skill match. It's really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so that's primarily when we started to look at research as a field, Single case was a really good uh, approach because we could run studies with experimental design where we could prove or show functional relation between the intervention and the behavior that changed. Mm -hmm. And so it was a practical approach. So now, what we've done as a field is try to look at all of the research as a whole to interpret the results Mm -hmm. on a larger scale. And so we've had a couple different research groups uh, that have composed uh, pretty extensive literature. Uh, reviews and analysis about the quality of research Mm -hmm. and the methods and um, the different standards for what good single case research looks like Mm -hmm. and so we've come up with um, basically set of standards and that kind of all encompasses within what's called evidence-based practices so if it's got enough research to support it Mm -hmm. as a practice then we can deem it evidence-based practice and so there's a couple different groups out there that look at it um one is the national center for autism Mm -hmm. research and then um what's the other one (laughs) i always forget these two groups um is it the the MPLD or MPDC? Or yeah M P D C okay yeah that's right yeah and so these two groups both publish uh, reports the last one I think was updated in two thousand fifteen okay two thousand sixteen maybe okay um, and so basically you can go on and look to see uh, what they call briefs about the literature and so you can see like what category they put um, different practices into so like okay. at all um is considered an evidence-based practice and speech generating devices fall within that area
0: of assisted technology yeah Mm -hmm. assisted
1: technology Um, There's lots of different evidence-based practices, though. can't remember what our current number is, but a lot of them are behavior analytic in nature, Mm -hmm. so you see things like antecedent interventions, Mm -hmm. um, reinforcement, things of that nature.
0: Okay, and those are typically the practices that you would recommend to a practitioner to utilize in a classroom or in a clinic, whatever setting the student might be in. In fact, it's required...
1: um, that we use evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. in public school settings. We don't want to be trying out uh, different types of approaches that haven't been proven with science. Mm -hmm. Um, Legally, you don't want to do that. But also, we want to be efficacious with our practice. We want to make sure that we're doing things that lead to better changes in behavior at the best rate we can, Mm -hmm. um, especially given that most of the children we're working with have you know, a little bit of a gap in Mm -hmm. terms of their skill set compared to their peers. Mm -hmm. So we want to bridge those gaps and selecting interventions that don't have good science to support them, you know, that's a 50-50 shot or less, you know. We want to make sure we're doing things that are sound Mm -hmm. because we want to get... the child up to speed and, you know, we want to get the skill set they need to be able to live independently in life yes. or as independently as possible. Mm-hmm. So.
0: What are some examples of some practices that you've heard people throw around that aren't backed by research so that are not evidence-based?
1: <laughs> well, so one related to um, the use of speech-generating devices is called facilitated communication.
0: Um, not to be confused with functional communication, no, not to be the confused. same acronym. Yeah, those are very different <laughs> <Yes>. things. So <laughs>
1: facilitated communication actually has a... Um, we've run research to prove that it does not work. So they did a double-blind study, which is like Gold Star Research Standard. Um, and this was a long time ago that this was done. Mm-hmm. And primarily it was done because there were allegations of sexual abuse from uh, the children that were using facilitated communication related to people who were either caring for them or their family members.
0: Okay.
1: Um, And so it became kind of a controversial topic. Uh, In fact, there's a frontline documentary about facilitated communication if you want to learn all about the history of it. But essentially it involved um, someone who was facilitating the child's communication by holding out their index finger and prompting them to point to different letters. And then they would take, you know, the composition of what the child said and have a message. Okay. Uh, However, most of the time, um, it was not the child communicating. Mm -hmm. It was the facilitator, whether it was in their subconscious or in their conscious Mm -hmm. state. But um, at the end of the day, I kind of always... Because I've seen that practice used even now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, nobody wants to hear that they're wrong (laughs) or that they selected an intervention. That's not great, but... I always just go back to, is it functional? Like, is this Mm -hmm. child able able to communicate on their own? Because Mm -hmm. if not, then unless they're going to have somebody with them the rest of their life... You know, it's just not a great idea. Like, we should be able to teach children. We've got all sorts of different technology out there. We should be able to teach them the function of communication, Mm -hmm. and it should be under their own motivation, not somebody else's.
0: absolutely.
1: So I think that's the tough part, and not that we want to turn somebody's voice off by any means, Mm -hmm. but um, we need to do things that help uh, promote autonomy. Mm -hmm. And so... Definitely. It's not a very autonomous practice in my mind. Anytime you're having to prompt somebody to do something, um, that should be the means towards getting independent, not the end game. Okay. So.
0: I have two follow-up questions to that. So mm-hmm. first, um, you mentioned prompting. What, do you, what, do you talk, what are you referring to when you say prompting?
1: So prompting is the idea that when a behavior's not happening, we want to do things to help the child learn how to do the behavior if it's a mm-hmm. skill deficit. Um, and so with the use of things like speech generating devices, for example, Um, If a child doesn't know how to activate the symbol on the screen, Mm -hmm. we would want to show them how to do that. Mm -hmm. So that would be a type of prompt, a model prompt is what we will call that, where you have somebody that says, oh, you touch this button, and they do it, and you see how them do it. And Mm -hmm. sometimes kids can learn in that type of way. Mm -hmm. Um, There's other more invasive types of prompting procedures that we would use. um, And usually these are things that we would assess for to see, like, what is a good prompting hierarchy for a child. Okay. Um, Anytime you're looking at that kind of stuff, you also want to consider how would this be faded systematically Mm -hmm. because we we don't want prompts to stay around for forever. We want them to be quick. Mm -hmm. We want it to teach the skill and then we want to fade it out (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm.
1: to where that child can do it by themselves. Because prompt
0: dependency is a thing that a lot of children can experience if you um, stay in the prompt phase for too long.
1: Yeah, I've seen kids that are prompt-dependent because essentially they've learned, oh, just wait for a second, Mm -hmm. somebody will help me do it, you know, (laughs) Um, which is not a great place to be because, like I said, things need to be under that learner's motivation, not somebody else's. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to be careful in how we set up the learning environment, and that's where um, behavior analysis taught me a lot because we were able to think about, all right, on an antecedent level, so things that happen right before a behavior, what can we do? to set the occasion. So, like, for example, if we are teaching a child to request something, we would want to make sure that that child has motivation for an item, that mm-hmm. they actually like the item. Mm-hmm. And so we would do what's called a preference assessment to okay. see, does this kid like Oreo cookies? Mm-hmm. If we're <laughs> trying out Oreo cookies, um, we would want to actually test that item out with some other items that we think they might like. Okay. Because then from there, we can kind of see, all right, what is his favorite thing or her favorite thing? And if, the child doesn't have functional communication skills. We will want to start with things that are super reinforcing. Mm-hmm. So that way they understand, hey, when you do this new behavior, you get this really great thing out yes. of it. And so you ask for that and you get it. And, wow, mm-hmm. life is grand. Yeah. And we don't want to do that forever. We, At some point, we'd like you to respond to social environment, mm-hmm. you know, and to your peers and things like that, but for initial communication, it's a good way to kind of get it going. Mm -hmm. So then once you kind of build that requesting or manding repertoire, we would want to extend to other things where uh, we teach other types of operants, other types of communication skills, like labeling things Uh or making comments about things, or having an exchange with somebody, like conversational exchange,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and so you mentioned a model prompt. What are some other types of prompting that you might encounter or that you might so utilize with a student? Some of
1: the ones, generally, we kind of look at things in terms of the hierarchy. So the two major things that we look at are usually most to least prompting, which means I'm going to give you the most intrusive prompt to start with. Mm-hmm. That way you don't have mistakes and it's easy for the child to do it Mm -hmm. and then from there once that child is learning how to engage in the behavior so if it's activating a device we might take their finger and activate the button and then reinforce and then over time we would thin that out to where or fade that out to where it's not um Full physical prompting. Mm -hmm. It would be more like, maybe I'm going to touch your elbow to remind you to touch the Mm -hmm. button. Or maybe I'm going to tell you while I'm gesturing at the button, touch this one. Um, We would kind of systematically uh, fade those prompts to where we start out with something intrusive, but then we back it up to where it's something not very intrusive, like a gesture.
0: Okay.
1: Um, The other... Um, opposite of that would be least to most prompting Mm -hmm. and depending on the learner you kind of have to assess what type of prompting hierarchy you're going to use children that are kind of more prompt dependent we might want to consider not giving them a full prompt Mm -hmm. (laughs) to begin with Um, but those are things that actually require good assessment so you need to kind of evaluate those prompts and the child's ability to respond to the prompt Mm-hmm. Um, before you decide on a hierarchy. Okay. You also have to kind of have to think about what it is you're teaching. <laughs> um, yeah. So a lot of careful planning <laughs> should be uh, done before you start an intervention until you know what type of prompting hierarchy to use and what type of reinforcement to use. Yeah, um, All those things matter.
0: Absolutely. Okay, so you talked a little <laughs> bit about um, facilitated communication, which is not evidence-based. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about one... Um, strategy that is evidence-based that you often utilize or have utilized in the past?
1: Um, Yeah, so reinforcement contingencies. I utilize these all the time, pretty much daily,
0: (laughs) especially with the children
1: that I work with. Uh Um, And so assessing for preference, Mm -hmm. because I need to make sure that However, I'm going to reinforce you is actually reinforcing. So I always give people like the scenario like if somebody were to give me decaffeinated coffee, not a reinforcing time in my life. Yeah. I would not want <laughs> it. Like I would literally Get be like, "No, nah, I don't need that." Thank yeah. you though. Um, but if someone were to preference assess me, they would soon learn like, "Oh, Carnat really loves." Um, you know, flat white. <laughs> <laughs> and from then on, they could probably get me to do some behavior and reinforce it with that uh, yeah. type of coffee. So, um mm-hmm. Yeah, I utilize reinforcement contingencies all the time. So okay. in terms of the work I do, reinforcement should increase uh, levels of behavior. Mm-hmm. If it's not increasing levels of behavior, turns out it's not reinforcement. Yeah,
0: so. appropriate <laughs> behavior, right? Yeah, appropriate <laughs> yeah. desired behavior, yeah. yeah, or targeted behavior. Yes. Yeah, not just any. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so if a parent came to you and said they want more information on evidence-based practices, where would you direct them? What so,
1: would you say? I, because I'm horrible memory, these days, I always just tell people, well, why don't you Google the autism internet modules? Okay. And what these are is it's put on by some of the researchers that actually code um, to determine evidence-based practices. Okay. It's not Work's Worth Clearing House, but it's um, another one of the national autism uh, centers. Okay. And they can actually get on and set up a username and password. And on the Autism Internet modules, there's videos and resources for people. So okay. it's intended for educators, for parents, uh, for anybody that wants to learn more about evidence-based practices. Okay. And it gives you um, a task analysis of what the skill is, how to do it. There's video examples. Wow. Um, there's little modules learning uh, set up for each one and then they're still developing them actually so every time new EBPs um are identified then they try to do a little bit on a lag schedule but Mm -hmm. basically they're setting up more um each year okay
0: is there anything that's more like like for the student himself or herself so like a video model for the student that they can watch on um the autism internet modules or social stories or things like that. a child with autism? Mm -hmm. Or um, Or that the parent can utilize with their child with autism?
1: Well, I think most interventions have to be kind of individualized. Mm -hmm. Same with the video model. Uh, There's different types of applications that you can download. I've seen some on video modeling. But, I mean, it really depends on what skills you're targeting. (laughs) So... You know, if my child doesn't have a problem, you know, washing their hands, mm-hmm. then a video model on washing yeah. their yeah. hands is probably not going to be very mm-hmm. helpful. Yeah. Um, but there's different... I mean, there's so many resources out there. Okay. Um, but I would start with that. Okay. Um, there's so much out there that it can be overwhelming to mm-hmm. people. So that's kind of where I send people first if they're trying to learn more about evidence-based practices. Okay. Um, just because it's a safeguarded site where mm-hmm. I know, like, the people... And the researchers that have done the work on it okay. are part of the um, part of the consortium of people trying to um, collaborate on identifying evidence based practices. Okay. But There's lots of good um, resources, and they they actually list some of the research on those modules. So if they okay. wanted to learn even further, past yeah just the whatever EBP they're looking at, they Mm -hmm. could.
0: Nice. (laughs) And you mentioned What Works Clearing House. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that?
1: So What Works Clearing House is another organization that evaluates research standards and rigor. You actually have to be um, certified, I think, to to use their standards. So I'm actually not. Okay. (laughs) As a researcher, I've not ever done whatever qualifications that are required. Um, I don't even, I'm not familiar with too much about it. Okay. But, um, anyways, it's an organization where you can look up different types of um, interventions to determine if they're research based or not.
0: Okay. Okay, great. Um, okay, so I always close with asking for some pieces of advice. So you're a researcher and a professor. What piece of advice would you offer to a student in the field? So to someone like me who's starting off in the field, just getting into research and trying to figure out what path they want to take, what would you recommend?
1: Well, I say, you know, and this may not be the best advice out there. I don't know. It worked for me, okay, so I'll give it. Um, do what's motivating like you'll figure out what you like as long as you're doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so for me I was able to figure out like oh I really like working with children that um, aren't developing spoken communication that's really um, something that's exciting to me Um, there's a lot we don't know and so it's just really reinforcing and really motivating to Mm -hmm. me to want to spend time on it Mm -hmm. so I kind of tell that with most researchers. Research is not easy. It's not all that rewarding sometimes. (laughs) We get little snippets of rewards occasionally, just (laughs) enough to maintain our behaviors. Um, And so you've got to have if you don't have the interest yourself and you're not motivated in the topic itself, then Mm -hmm. you're not going to do much on it. Yeah. You know, you'll get punished and then you'll stop doing (laughs) it. Or you just won't contact reinforcement long enough when you just kind of something else looks cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So find the cool thing, find the thing that looks motivating to you and look and see and start working in it and figure out if it is motivating to you. Okay. Um, You know, we have to have that kind of drive I think to spend the time on the things that mm-hmm. we spend time on otherwise yeah. we're going to find other things to spend time on yeah so,
0: definitely um,
1: find the thing that's reinforcing find okay the thing that's motivating yeah and if you do
0: you'll be great I think that's great advice and something that I've heard from several professors so I think it's good yeah get a good level of grit
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've been learning lately at least
0: yes okay so another piece of advice that I would like from you is what would you tell to a practitioner in the field so you work a lot with teachers in the field who support students with autism what piece of advice would you give to one of those teachers um
1: I guess the main thing is like you've got to stay educated uh yourself you know mm-hmm. you're working with kids in a field where we're still learning mm-hmm. um you know we don't have it all figured out especially in you know applied behavior analysis field is still pretty young Um, So you've got to stay up to date on uh, the research. And one way to do that is through professional development. So find a good source to get your professional development through and make sure that you take the time to do it and that you have administrators that um, understand the value of staying on top of Um, professional standards and Mm -hmm. uh, the research in your field. That way you can be effective inside the classroom. It's, you know, the classroom's a difficult place Mm -hmm. because there's lots of variables going on all at once. And so um, you kind of, you've got to do what works for uh, educating yourself. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that can be difficult because you feel like you don't have the time to be gone. Yeah, Um, teachers are super busy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard... uh, it's a hard job. But definitely so,
0: worthwhile. I mean, yeah, like I much.
1: mean, like, it's great. Like, at the end of the day, you're exhausted, but it's because you did a lot. Yes. so Yeah, you're making it It's not a bad dead. exhaustion. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's a lot of fun. Like, mm-hmm. one of my favorite years was when I taught PPCD. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I just fun. Teaching PPCD, yeah. Like, I had no idea, like, what I was getting into, but it was a lot of fun. We got to work on so many things, and yeah. it was really rewarding. And
0: they're so cute and fun at that age. And I just... mean,
1: like, honestly, I haven't met an age I didn't like yet, yeah. so... Yeah hard for me to pinpoint I always think every kid I work with is my favorite yeah. kid but <laughs> um that's great yeah you know i think you got to have fun with what you do too mm-hmm. otherwise if it's too gloomy you're going to feel sad about it yeah so i think professional development helps things stay fun because you know how to respond to different things mm-hmm. that are happening um you know how to address the students needs i mean i went back to school to try to figure that out so mm-hmm. if that's what you need to do i think it, You know, most people will do what it takes. Yeah. You know, most teachers I've ever worked with, they have the heart to do it, and Mm -hmm. they care. And so, if you care... And they're
0: looking for those solutions a lot of times, so...
1: Yeah, and so, I mean... They're are MacGyvers of the world, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> our teachers.
1: <laughs> well, it just makes me laugh because even now when I go to like consult with a, a class, like I'll run into whoever like's out there consulting too, or a teacher tells mm-hmm. me like, oh, we tried this and look at this cool like life hack. Yeah. And we're trying to figure out. Um, how to order like a grid display separator which would be like a type of sheet you would put on top of a device oh, okay. to help set the parameters of the different buttons okay they're using hair rubber bands and i was just floored i was oh, like i love cool. it like you guys just figured so this created. out yeah <laughs> that's awesome
0: <laughs> yeah and they made their own
1: grid <laughs> yeah that's so, <laughs> so neat. It's things like that that are like pretty cool
0: yeah well thank you so much dr yeah, carnet for coming you. on the autism hour i really appreciate yeah, it yeah thanks a lot it was a lot of fun thanks Hey everyone and thank you for listening to this episode of the Autism Hour podcast where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. I'm your host Chelsea Pruitt and today I've talked to Dr. Anne-Marie Carnett. Dr. Carnett had a lot of helpful information and shared a lot of great resources so I'll be sure to include those in the show notes if you want to check those out. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment to rate and write a brief review of the Autism Hour Podcast on iTunes, more people can learn about the podcast and we can reach our goal of sharing information about autism with whoever wants to listen and whoever wants more information about it. So I appreciate you doing that in advance and um really hope that you're getting a lot from this podcast and you'll continue to listen each week. So thank you so much and have a great week.